So how do you feel? I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but how would you feel if when someone starts a sentence, you're in a conversation with someone and they say, God said to me, how do you feel? You know, if I told one of my kids, you need to clean your room, and they say, well, Dad, God said to me that I don't have to clean my room. How would I feel? Well, if it was just my kids saying that, I would immediately rebuke them and say, well, um, God said to me that you're to honor your father and your mother. But if an adult came to me and told me something, you know, we were having an important conversation, and you know, they said, well, God said to me, I would get a little, little bit nervous, and I'd be caught off guard. And the reason I would be caught off guard and the reason I would be slightly nervous is because when God speaks, it is necessarily an authoritative statement. It has authority because God spoke. It's a statement of divine intervention, and it's something to be obeyed. It's not, when God says something, when he speaks, it's not mere uh, good advice or mere wisdom or optional counsel as if you were uh, getting coffee with a friend and they gave you advice. And so to say, well, God told me, that's a statement believers should be wary of hearing and certainly saying for themselves because nowhere in Scripture are we promised to hear the authoritative voice of the Lord in our lives apart from Scripture, apart from the Scriptures. And that, that can be tough for us to hear because we read so many accounts in the Bible where someone gets a direct personal word from the Lord. Similar to what Samuel is, is, in, is hearing in 1 Samuel 3, he's getting words from the Lord, a personal conversation with God. We get this with Moses and the burning bush. He gets a direct word, personal word from the Lord. We get this with Abraham, the call of Abraham, God speaking directly to Abraham. We get this with the disciples, speaking and walking and ministering with Jesus in his earthly ministry. We get this with the Apostle Paul, who was blinded on the road to Emmaus and gets this direct communication from God himself. And so many of us read these accounts and assume that the Bible is presenting a normal experience that we should have too, of all who follow God. But is it? Is it a normal experience? A Bible teacher, Graham Goldsworthy, speaks to this question in his book, Gospel and Wisdom. And he writes, Every case of special guidance given to individuals in the Bible has to do with that person's place in the outworking of God's saving purposes. So every person who receives divine words from God personally has a special place in the outworking of God's saving purposes. And he adds this, that there are no instances in the Bible in which God gives special and specific guidance to the ordinary believing Israelite or Christian in the details of their personal existence. So the, the problem is we read stories like this and we forget that millions of God's people 
over centuries do not have this experience that Samuel is experiencing right now. This is unique. This is special. But because we have limited words in our Bible, limited stories, we, we tend to think that this is normal and that we should experience this too. Nancy Guthrie talking about this idea, she, has, she says, but I think there's something more at work here than simply our desire to sound spiritual or like a child, make it difficult for someone to challenge our preferences or decisions. We genu- she writes, we genuinely long for God to guide us. So there's a genuineness to that, that, that we all should desire to have, to have that experience. Well, how amazing would that be to have a, a supernatural experience, to hear from God? We genuinely long for that. We genuinely long for a personal word from God, a supernatural experience with God. But brothers and sisters, I want to affirm for you this morning that every time we open our Bibles, God is speaking to you. That every time we open this word, in your morning devotions, when we come to church, when we hear his word preached, when we study it for ourselves, he's speaking to you. This is a supernatural word. This is a living and active word. It's personal as well. He speaks directly to you. It's written uh, at a specific time telling specific stories, but it's written for God's people for all ages. And so as we read God's word, be reminded of that. that Did you have a personal word of the Lord? You have that. And she continues to write, Nancy Guthrie says, As we delight ourselves in the law of the Lord day and night, we can expect his word to be living and active in our inmost parts. As that word transforms us by the renewal of our minds, we will find that our thoughts and feelings and dreams and desires are being shaped more by his word than by our flesh. We will find that we are more drawn to obey his commands than to follow the culture. We will ask him for wisdom and receive it out of his generosity. That this is the way we have relationship with God, through his word. And that's the way it's been for the vast majority of God's people, for the vast majority uh, of time. That we have a God who speaks to us every day if we're willing to open our Bibles and read it. And so the main idea of chapter 3 of 1 Samuel to us this morning is that God speaks through His Word. He speaks through His Word to show us who He is and show us what we need. He shows us who He is and what we need. So we're going to be looking at this text and ask two questions. How does God speak and why does God speak? Those are the two questions we're asking this morning. How and why does God speak? Well, since tomorrow is Halloween, but also Reformation Day, Reformation Day, the day we celebrate Martin Luther uh, putting his 95 theses on the door at Wittenberg and sort of launching and starting um, what we think of as a Reformation, although it had beginnings before that. The Reformation spread throughout Europe and Germany, but also in other places in Switzerland, Geneva. And as the Reformation was taking hold in in Geneva, 
And as they were reforming the church and, and moving away from Roman Catholic practices, they created at the churches there in Geneva these ordinances, these rules for the church in Geneva. And some of those rules specified this, that, that each Sunday there is to be a sermon at St. Pierre and St. Gervais at break of day. Right? So two churches, sermon at the break of day. And at the usual hour at 9 a.m., and at midday, there is to be a catechism, that is, instruction of little children in all three churches. And at 3 p.m., a second sermon. And on working days throughout the week, there will be a sermon at St. Pierre three times a day, three times a week, sorry, on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So if you're keeping count of all of those sermons, that's six sermons per week in Geneva at that time. Del Ralph Davis writes that the, um, the motto of the Reformation in Geneva was post tenebras lux, after darkness, light. After darkness, light. The Reformation was bringing light, the light of Christ into the world. That was the motto of the Reformed Geneva. And the preaching schedule in Geneva reflects the assumption of Calvin and others that light for God's people comes when the word of God has free course among God's people, hence six sermons per week. If we preach six sermons per, all week long, I wonder, I wonder what our attendance would be like uh, throughout the week here. We're not quite used to that, are we, as a people? But that, that's what they did. That's what they were hungry for. They were hungry for God's word. And God is most at work when his word has free course among his people. So as we look at this text this morning, how does God speak? Well, he's, he has spoken to his people in different ways throughout time. And in this day and age, he had chosen mouthpieces. He had prophets. He had prophets. And so if you look at the very last verses of chapter 3, it's revealed to us how Samuel is going to serve the Lord. If you look at verse 20, in all Israel from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. So it's now revealed that Samuel is going to be a prophet. But we didn't know that, what, how exactly he was going to be used in the temple until now. He's going to be this uh, bearer of God's word, a herald of God's word. And from Dan to Beersheba, which is really from the north to the south ends of Israel, everybody knew he was established as the prophet. So what is a prophet? What is a role of a prophet in the Old Testament? The role of the prophet was to speak God's word to God's people. Sometimes this was a word of judgment. Sometimes this was a word of grace. But in total, the prophet was a spokesman on behalf of God for the people. We read in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, that long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Right, that was the way. They didn't have Bibles. Right? They didn't have uh, scriptures that they were reading. They had, they had these men who were chosen by God to, to speak God's word. And so where we left off, uh, we, we get this uh, prophet, another man of God. If you look at verse 27 in chapter 2, who came and spoke a prophecy against Eli and against his household and against his sons for the disobedience that they were involved in taking the offerings of, 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 the, of the people giving their offerings and, and having sex with the women 
at the temple, right? They were demeaning God's house. And so there is this prophecy coming against uh, Hophni and Phinehas and Eli. And so the boy Samuel, we read in verse 1, is ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. So Eli's the priest, Samuel's serving. We see the Lord was, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. We'll talk about that in a minute. And we see in verse 2 that at that time, Eli, his eyesight had begun to grow dim that, that he could not see and was lying down in his own place. I don't think it's an, it's an accident we read about his eyesight. I think that's most likely a symbol for his own spiritual state, his vision, his, his insight into God and understanding who he is, is dimming. But the lamp of God had not gone out yet. So Samuel is sleeping in the temple. The lamp well, would have been, this is the lamp in the temple would have been uh, filled with oil and then uh, near the dawn of morning, that lamp would be growing dim and then would go out eventually. So what it's telling us is this is sort of early morning, right? Not quite daybreak has happened. And so Samuel's there and he hears this voice calling to him. It says, verse 4, Then the Lord called to Samuel and he said, Here I am. And he immediately runs not uh, to the ark or to, to, to wherever he thinks God is. He runs to Eli. He thinks this is Eli calling him. Eli tells him to, to, go, to lie back down again. This happens three different times where he calls him to go back down. But <clears throat> after the third time in verse 9, Eli says, Go lie down, but if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Eli understands that this is the Lord, this is Yahweh calling Samuel. And in verse 10, we see the fourth time the Lord appears. It says the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. And then here we get um, the conversation between God and Samuel. So how does God speak? That's the first idea, that, that God is turning Samuel into a prophet, one who speaks for God. A second way that God speaks is, is sometimes not at all. Sometimes not at all. That there is judgment when God doesn't speak. Look again at ver- back at verse 1. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. There was no frequent vision. When we hear the word vision, we often, rightly so, think um, something visual, right? Something, um, something we can see with our eyes. But vision in the Old Testament doesn't always mean something we see with our eyes or optical. It refers to audible revelation or prophecy. When we read uh, the beginning of Isaiah, the beginning of that says the vision of Isaiah, uh, the vision of Nahum, the vision of Obadiah. So these different prophets, the vision or prophecy that that they get is is not necessarily visual. Um, Perhaps it was for the prophet to some regard, but it's really referring to these words, this prophecy. So when it says there's no frequent vision, don't, don't think that people are having visions, but there was no word from the Lord. There was no prophecy from the Lord. And this was really judgment on the people. This was judgment because of the, the, the way in which the priesthood was operating. That, that we read back in the last chapter, verse, uh, uh, the, verse 12 of chapter 2, that Eli's sons, the priests, were worthless. They did not know the Lord. 
And so there is a type of judgment when God doesn't speak at all. Amos chapter 8, verse 11, we read that, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing of the words of the Lord. Right? That is the judgment that is coming. You see, that is, that's bad. When God chooses not to speak to us, we're cut off from his mercy. We're cut off from his grace. If, you've ever, if you're married, if you've ever had a, a fight with your wife or husband, that can go one of two ways, your response. You can give them the loud treatment, yelling, screaming, or you can give them the silent treatment. And maybe you've tried both. But have you ever given someone the, the silent treatment? Why is it so effective, the silent treatment? Well, think about it. When you, when you give someone the silent treatment, you're angry at them, and you are uh, pulling back your words. You're pulling back your presence from them. You're removing yourself out of relationship with them. And you're not doing it accidentally. You're doing it intentionally when we give each other the silent treatment. You're punishing the other person with your lack of words. Right? You're cutting them off from your mercy and grace and relationship. And so, in a sense, God is doing that with with his people, that he is removing his words. He's removing, he's giving them the silent treatment, at least for a time, because of the way they've treated his temple. But you know, sometimes when God judges people in the Old Testament and in the New and, and even now today, it involves giving people what they want when God judges them. Think about it. Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, they were pleased with the way things were going. They were getting the offerings they wanted. Um, Hophni and Phinehas were living the way they wanted, sexually immoral lives. They didn't want to hear a word from God. They didn't want to hear from God. They wanted to go the other way. And so when God doesn't talk, when he doesn't speak, in a sense, he's giving them this judgment is what they really want. And so we need to be careful in our own lives that God may give you what you want. You think that you're enjoying your time away from the Lord in rebellion and enjoying the temptations of this world, but it's really God at work in giving you what you want. I I recall what I read last week. Romans chapter 1, where Paul writes that, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, that a part, one of the aspects of God's judgment is to give people up, to give them what they want. And so ask yourself this morning, is there a silence of God in your life? Because that's what you want. Have you not been hearing from the Lord? Because that is what you desire. If so, God may be giving you what you want as judgment. Where, where we think we're most free from the Lord, we're actually under his judgment. Another kind of judgment is, is not him not speaking, but us not hearing. The judgment of us not hearing his word. Sometimes the judgment is not on the producing end, but on the receiving end. There's this 
scene in Mark chapter 6 where Jesus is going around to the different villages and he goes to his own hometown where he's not received. Mark chapter 6, and he said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And what's interesting is verse 5, And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. And so don't think that he was hindered from doing a mighty work there, as if unbelief causes God and ties his hands, but it's his own judgment against and against that town that he would do no mighty work there. I'm reminded of Acts 6, where Stephen is stoned, And as he's glorifying the Lord, as he's sharing the gospel, those attackers, those who stoned him, stop their ears. They don't want to hear. They don't want to hear the good news. They don't want to hear about Jesus. They stop their ears. And so it's a kind of starvation, not for lack of food, but for lack of appetite. People don't want to hear it. They don't want to respond. It's a judgment of us not hearing, not wanting to hear God's word. The fourth way that God speaks to us is that he speaks directly to us. That's one aspect of this scene in in 1 Samuel 3 that we can really glean from, that that as, as Samuel is hearing a word from God, it's a personal word. It's spoken right to him. And so there's this truth that God always, when he's speaking, there's always a sense in which he's speaking directly to us. That God never deals with us in general. As he's 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 never um, he's never just dealing with God's people in general. There's always a personal application. There's always an alarming particularity to God's word. Have you ever sat in a sermon and listened to the preacher and felt like he was speaking right to you? I've had that experience, and that is often the function of the Holy Spirit in your life. That God's word is illuminated and and spoken right to your heart. I remember as a kid reading, um, at the time God was really saving me around probably nine or ten years old, that the truths, especially in the book of Romans, were just piercing my heart. That this was a, a message. This message that Paul wrote was for me in particular. And that is true for every single one of God's people that he speaks directly to your soul, directly to your heart. Isaiah 43, I've called you by name. You are mine. Don't remove yourself and think that there's this great distance between you and God that he speaks only generally. He speaks directly to you. He knows your name. He calls you by name. The word of God as we read in 2 Timothy 3.16, the word of God is active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. It will pierce your soul. And so he speaks directly to us. Just as he's speaking directly to Samuel, he speaks to you, and he speaks to me when you read it. So how does God speak? He speaks through his mouthpieces. He speaks in judgment by not speaking. He speaks in judgment by us not hearing, but he also speaks directly to you and to me. And we have his word. 
We don't just have prophets. We have his complete word today. So that's how God speaks. Why does God speak? Why does he speak to you and me? Well, this is, um, this is God speaking to Samuel, but he's really calling Samuel. He's calling him to a specific role. And we see several different uh, examples of God calling prophets. We see that in Isaiah. We see that in Jeremiah of God calling a particular person to a particular work. But why does God speak to you and me? Well, he, he speaks to call us as well. He speaks to call us to himself as a follower of Christ. He speaks specifically to us. John chapter 10, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So when Jesus says in John 10, 27, that my sheep hear my voice, he's not necessarily, he's not talking about an audible voice that you can't be a Christian unless you hear an audible voice of Jesus in your ear, what he's saying is there is a supernatural call through God's word where he speaks directly to you in his word to call you to himself, to save you. They hear my voice. God's sheep hears his voice and he knows them and they follow me. Have you experienced that call upon your own life? Is Christianity just a theory, or is it real? Is it something that you can hold it at a distance and not really make a big impact on your life, or is it real? Is, it, is this a personal God calling you to himself? Have you experienced that? Ask yourself that question this morning. So he calls us. Why else does God speak? Secondly, he, he calls us to reveal his character. That in this scene between Samuel and God, as he's sleeping and woken up by God's word, God's revealing his character, isn't he? What does he show us about himself as he's calling Samuel? How does, how does he reveal himself? Isn't it amazing as you read chapter 3 how patient God is? That he, that he allows Samuel these extra chances to figure out who's calling him. He could have immediately blinded him with light and had uh, Samuel wake up, this little boy wake up, shaking, right, in his linen ephod, shaking, scared. We see that in the New Testament with angels. They bow down in fear to angels. But if, the, if Yahweh is there, he could, have, he, could have, he could have picked him right up, knocked him down with his glory, but he didn't. He waited, he was patient, he was gracious, he was compassionate. We read in verse 7 that Samuel did not yet know the Lord. That's different from Eli's sons not knowing the Lord. They had rejected the Lord. Samuel was still growing and learning. He had yet not heard the word of the Lord, did not know him intimately yet. And so what that, what that tells me as a believer is that, isn't that good news that God is willing to deal with us tenderly? that he stoops low and is willing to work with us to get us where he wants us to go. That God knows when we're saved, we're not finished products. We have a whole life of, to be sanctified and to learn and to grow, and he is willing 
to be patient with us. That's so different from me, with, even with my own kids. I sometimes, I treat our six-year-old like he should be 12. Or I, I treat our four-year-old like she should be eight years old. I'm not tender. I'm not compassionate. I'm not patient with them. But God is with us. He knows we're working. He knows we're learning. He knows we're growing. Jesus in John chapter 16 tells his disciples, I have many things to say to you, but you're not able to bear them now. Right? Even Jesus with his disciples, he could have blown them away with knowledge about all sorts of things. But he says, you're not able to bear right now. So you'll, you'll know later. The Holy Spirit will guide you into it. Do you know this patient, loving God? Or is God all about efficiency for you? Is he all about um, efficient with time and making, making sure you do this X, Y, and Z uh, right away? Or is he patient? Is he guiding you? Is he loving you? Is he compassionate? Do you know that God? The God of 1 Samuel 3 that understands that we are weak. And so he reveals his character to Samuel. He reveals that but he's a compassionate God. Thirdly, we see God, that he speaks to us to demand complete loyalty. That God draws lines in the sand. And here I'm picking it up from verse 10 through 13. He calls Samuel, 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 and then in verse 11, the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in, in Israel, in which two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. And on that day, I'll fulfill against Eli all that I've spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God. And he, that is Eli, did not restrain them. You see, God demands complete loyalty. He draws lines in the sand. You can cross God eventually. You he is tender, he is compassionate, but he is also a God of justice and a, and a holy God that God demands all of us. He demands our hearts, he demands our wills, our joy, our, our money, our love. And so the problem with Eli and his sons, especially though with Eli, is he honored his sons more than the Lord. That He held his sons in higher regard than, than God. And so the punishment for failure was going to be severe. It was going to be death for his sons for blaspheming God. He didn't restrain them. And so here we read that, God, that sin has serious consequences, That's, that God just cannot let sin go. He must judge it. He must punish it. And so when we think about our own lives, that God's call on your life trumps every other call on our lives. And everything in our lives has to submit to God and what he's calling us to. And Eli had failed, and his, sin, his sons had crossed the line. And so, for you and I, as we think about God's word to us and his call and, his, and how he speaks, why he speaks to us, he speaks to remind us that we haven't lived up to his standard. And so have you been attentive to his demand for complete loyalty? for submitting yourself to him? Or are you biding your time before you choose him? 
Are you thinking, I, I think I want to live the way I want to live for as long as I can get away with it, and then maybe, maybe I'll submit to him. Well, that's a dangerous, dangerous game to play. And it's not one that shows a changed heart or an understanding of God's grace. And so if that's you this morning, what's delaying you? What's delaying you? Why, why, why put yourself in that situation? We don't, one, of, one of the ways God speaks to us is he tells us we've crossed a line. He shows us where we failed, and we all have failed. And the final way that he's, why he speaks to us, he speaks to us by his final word, and that is, that is Christ Jesus If you look at verse 21, to the very end of our passage, it says, And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And in verse 19, he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. Look how word-centered it's speaking about Samuel. This emphasis on the word of God that this is what Samuel was to do, that he was to to speak God's word to God's people, and this this is pointing to the final word of Jesus, the great prophet, Jesus Christ. And I've referenced it already, but in Hebrews 1, verse 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. So we see the differentiation that the author of Hebrews is making that, that all throughout history, God spoke through our prophets. But now he's spoken through this final prophet, his son, Jesus Christ. That he is the final word of God. And I read this earlier, but from John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. In verse 14 And this word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, Jesus is the word. He's the word who came. He's the final prophet. He's the greatest prophet. He is the word of God to God's people. This is the word that the Apostle John spoke about in his letter that 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 which was from the beginning, which we've heard and seen with our eyes, looked upon, touched with our hands, this word of life, that's how he describes Jesus, this word of life was made manifest and we've seen it. So more than just patient with our flesh and our weaknesses, Jesus became flesh and weakness for you and me. That he covers us by his final word, that yes, we are lawbreakers, that we have broken the law of God. We have been on the wrong side of God. I have been on the wrong side of God. Our failures and our love affair with ourselves and our sin has put a guilty sign around all of our necks. Brothers and sisters, we're no less rule breakers and God rebels than Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. We need God's word of free grace alone. And so that free grace alone comes through faith alone and Christ alone and nothing else. That final word, that great prophet, God's final word is grace to all those who confess, repent, and follow Christ. So I ask you, is that you this morning? Have you done that? Do you know this Christ, this prophet, this priest, this king? Because we're all sinners. 
And we've all crossed the line with God. And so for those of you, as I began this morning, for those of you who are desperate to hear God calling your name, just like Samuel, just like in our passage, he's calling you this very moment through his word to put away your hunger for the things of this world and to have ears to hear the patient, loving voice of Jesus saying, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. That's the God we have. That's Jesus Christ, our Savior. Go to him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this this story of Samuel in the temple and you calling him and how it teaches us so much about who you are that you're a God of love and patience and you're doing a new thing in Israel. You're calling a new prophet. You're taking your people in a new direction. And it all would point to the coming king, the great King David, but even greater, David's son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who we need desperately. So cause a hunger within us, Father, a hunger for your word, a hunger for uh, the Bible, to be reading it, to be gathering our families around it, and, and to be applying it to our hearts and our lives, that we should be a people of your word, first and foremost, as our highest authority. And so we thank you for that word. We thank you for that word as it is uh, showing us our sin and showing us our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.